0: And, and it's why so many of our internal clients don't care about digital analytics. And, and we think we're, we're, we think we're doing the opposite. You know, it's like, let's buy all of these tools and our internal clients are just going to be bedazzled and they're going to love it and they're going to want all of it. Like, no, in fact, the exact opposite. Alright, so what's gotta going turn, on? I gotta turn my camera. Do you see that weird, like, pixelating in the corner by the door?
1: Yeah, weird.
0: That's I didn't weird. notice it until you said it. Oh, you know what? Hold on. Yeah, it's in the so corner. Yeah, hold on. Oh, yeah. There we go. Uh, no, what? Oh, like, look at the Atari in the background. I know, but I don't. I was playing around with it earlier. Um, oh, okay. There we go. There we go. Okay, that's better. I had the green screen setting, um, and what I was noticing, so I had the green screen behind me, but the light coming in through that round window was screwing with the camera. So anywhere where that light was coming in, you got this weird pixelating thing that you saw coming through the door. So okay, like I can't use it in, unless I block that window because it's yeah. just it creates this weird artifact. So, Weird. Anyway, yeah. Yep. Oh well. Project for another day. Yeah. So what's going on? Uh, I thought yesterday was Thursday. So it's kind of where I'm at. One right of those now. weeks. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, wait. It was Wednesday. I I am all discombobulated. So it's okay. Yeah. I
1: woke up this morning. Like it was a little rough waking up this morning. I was just dragging. And when i first woke up it was one of those day, those mornings where it's like is today a, not even what day of the week is it is like is today a work day or a weekend day <laughs> and i was like no 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 it's not the weekend okay what day is it it's thursday that's right it's thursday it's october
0: oh yeah yeah so that's where we're at this week yeah one of those days so that should make recording fun yeah it should it should I did get I did get luncheon before recording, so the nice. food talk will probably be kept to a minimum, and no trying to eat while recording. So yeah,
1: um,
0: I like how you still have your Seinfeld Lego set behind you. Oh yeah, yeah it's it's got a permanent home on the uh, office fridge right there. And in fact, last week I'm like I I miss messing with it, so um, I almost bought a light kit. I, I think I know which one I need to buy. The problem is, is there's like three different light kits and I ended up watching like a couple hours worth of YouTube videos of people using the different light kits. And I, yeah. I think I finally decided I'm going to buy one. Cause I, I oh, nice.
1: Cool. Let me know how that goes.
0: Yeah, I will. Um, I think it'll look good. But
1: uh, speaking of Lego, um, you know, that fun story you like to tell about me, like within yeah, the yeah. first couple months oh, I of t- working. I,
0: I think I told it last week to somebody.
1: Yeah, so that exhibit is in Atlanta right now. Oh, So is I was talking it? with Jen yesterday. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you have to go see it. I mean, God, it's been eight years since it was here, uh, because we saw it in 2015 when it was here. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, he's got to have new exhibits. And she goes, it's actually already on their list
0: nice. to go
1: see. I'm like, do not miss it. It is a phenomenal nice. uh, phenomenal
0: thing. It's uh, called really The Art cool. of the Brick by Nathan Sawoya. Yeah, that sounds that sounds awesome. So... And I love telling that story. Yeah. And and I love my Seinfeld set. And in fact, I uh, I've got I, I think we I've talked about it on the podcast. I go down these rabbit holes on YouTube of like all sorts of weird accounts. Um and I and I stumbled across this guy in Germany that's building a Lego city in his basement and the level of detail he has on this thing is just mind boggling. It's there, there's incredible. a couple
1: there's a couple I follow on yeah. YouTube. Uh, There's actually one guy who's out in Utah. Oh, really? Um, And, uh, like, his entire basement is this giant city platform that he's built. And it's actually quite impressive to to watch it. Like, you know, when new big sets come out, like, he'll he'll do, like, a a run through of building it. And then where does
0: he place it? Yeah. Incredible. I mean, the patience the the attention to detail the budget I can't even imagine like how much those things run I mean I yeah. know from what I paid for this little set you know I'm doing it the can math it become in an my expensive head. hobby oh yeah oh yeah but yeah I mean it's a lot it's a lot like a lot of those um, I also follow a couple guys in uh, in the UK that apparently building model railroads in your attic in in the UK is just a thing. Uh, Oh, I didn't know that because I, I follow several people in the UK and they all have this like attic space, um, that they are, they've kind of transformed into model railroading, um, layouts. And again, like the attention to detail and, and it's not even just the attention to detail. These, these sets are often set in specific times. So one of the guys is it's like set in the eighties. So, all of the backdrop and buildings and everything is all 80s themed. All the all the freight and the locos he has on the on the layout are all f- from the 80s, like 80s style and he's weathered them to make them look old and it's
1: incredible. It's that's incredible. cool. Send that one to me because yeah, model railroading like that's also another fun thing to to check out.
0: Yeah, I'll send you this guy.
1: Yeah, the the level of detail. There's a guy I came across who's out of Pittsburgh and has, um, you know, something set up in his basement. And, like, he goes into details, like, on the gears of these. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's quite the
0: hobby. Yeah. yeah. Quite impressive. It is impressive. I, yeah. I, I always wanted to do a model train layout in my house. And I never did. it because my grandpa's brother had a, an entire room, like, I think in the 80s you called it a den. Um, but he had this like room that was like the couch and the TV room and he's, and he transformed it into a, an HO scale layout for his trains. And I'm like, this is the coolest room ever. I want this in my house. It never happened, but, uh, pretty, pretty awesome to watch. And I'm glad I can live it out through other people on YouTube. Yeah, it, it,
1: it's fun. And yeah, I, I definitely do a bit of the living vicariously through it. Cause it's like, God, like if I, I don't need an entire basement, but I wouldn't mind a corner somewhere yeah. to, to, to set like a little something up because I've, I've got a couple of the Lego sets I built here. Like I have this spaceship I built as part of our team building event in
0: September. Um, yeah, that would be totally fun. Speaking of entire basements, there's a guy I follow. I don't know where he's at. Somewhere in the United States. Um, but he has his entire basement as a scale model of the, of the line that runs from... Evanston, Wyoming to Ogden, Utah. And he's got no like way. it to scale with like stops along the way, landmarks and has the landmarks built in. It's again, just impressive.
1: Okay. One, one more thing as we're talking about trains. Um, I came across this show on the Smithsonian channel, which we get through our YouTube TV subscription um, called mighty trains. Mm-hmm. And each episode Um, the host like goes to like one of those kind of famous lines and rides it. And so like the first episode I watched uh, was the India Pacific in Australia. So it's a four day train ride that goes from Perth, Australia on the West coast on the Indian ocean, all the way over to Sydney on the East coast, you know, the, the, the Pacific ocean. And like, he goes into details of like how like yeah for the passengers it's a luxurious you know fun adventure but for those like uh, like the engineers and whatnot like it's you know you're going through parts of just complete wilderness yeah going through the Australian outback and like
0: you have to be like on the ball with it yeah yeah it's it's super fascinating i have a i have a friend that uh is an engineer. Um, and he, he goes from Ogden, uh, Utah to Ely, Nevada to run freight. Um, and he goes across a lot of land that you and I just can't get to, like it's, you can't get to it. Um, and, and he's, you know, he takes some, some great pictures. I'm like, dude, just let me ride with you in the cab. He's like 20 years ago, I could have let you do that, but there's been so many accidents and engineers not paying attention and, you know, Snapchatting and, and, you know, running through a a signal that like the rules now are so locked down i'm like ah that would be so cool wouldn't it yeah it would
1: i mean just the the things that we take for granted too um because so one of the things we're actually going to do an overnight train ride in august oh really we're we're going to florida for a week and a half we're crashing some friends vacation down there we're driving down but then we're taking the auto train back Uh, amtrak has an auto train that goes from It goes from Virginia to Sanford, Florida. So it's, okay. uh, where in Virginia? It's just south of DC in Virginia, um, down to Sanford, Florida, which is about 45 minutes north of Orlando. And it's one where you could, you well, they drive your vehicle on, oh, and
0: really? then you
1: drive back and forth. So yeah, like, like it leaves, you know, in, in the evening, and then you wake up the next morning arriving at your destination. So since we have a kid who's hooked on trains, we decided- And then you get
0: there and you have your car
1: yeah they 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 disembark the car, so that's awesome. we're gonna drive the entire way down, but then when we then leave go we're gonna get on there in Florida and then ride
0: the train home. Oh, that's super cool
1: yeah super I cool. mean it's it's not cheap. that's why one of the yeah. reasons why we're doing it one way, but also when we were looking at it, we're like we got a four year old who's hooked on trains like we when's the next time we're gonna have an opportunity to do this like we gotta do it. And um, I'm trying to spin this into our topic, by the way. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, and I mean, like you were talking a moment ago about like like the like the the care that goes into to things now and um, or at least the rules that need to be there to make sure the care goes into it. And some of the things that we as consumers just take for granted, like that, that Mighty Train show I was telling you about, like the famous lines. The, another line that they go through is uh, the Bergen line in, um, Norway, mm. uh, which is, which is a famous, fa- famous line in Scandinavia. Um, and what sometimes like the passengers just take for, for granted. Yeah. So you're asking, how am I going to spin this into to digital <laughs> analytics? I'm, I'm,
0: I'm curious.
1: So the question I have for you today, um, I, I, I want to focus like, uh, um, the next couple episodes around, the, the digital analytics industry, that space, and um, like some of the things that we do that maybe people take for granted or things that we do that we take for granted, that we just think are there um, being digital analytics implementers and practitioners. So the question I have for you today and the question I want to dissect is, does your client actually care about digital analytics? Uh, I think, and I'm going to call it a fatal flaw, I think it is a fatal flaw of the digital analytics space. I think there are many out there, and I've seen it, I've done it myself sometimes, that um, we often assume the value of what we're doing, what we're building, what information we're sharing, that the value is clearly apparent to anybody involved. You know, mm-hmm. like whether we're wiring up data collection and how we're, you know, these days, you know, you and I remember, you know, the, the previous world before tag managers where we had to go through development and we had to justify the cost of doing anything. Now we can quickly experiment with data collection and we can roll things out much faster. We know the value of the tools that we have and what we're able to do. We just assume other people know that too. Um, we just assume when we deliver insights, people are going to see the value in it. So I I do, I really want to dig into like, are you aware if your, your audience, your client, your main stakeholder actually cares about digital analytics or are you doing something that they, you think they care about, but to them it's, it's window dressing. It's something nice to, to say that they have.
0: Well, I, th- I think for lots of organizations, digital analytics is a nice to have. Um, and I didn't I haven't really put a ton of thought into it being because of what you're r- suggesting, but I think it's it's actually a really interesting topic to uh, explore and aligns with um, a strategy that I've talked a lot about on the podcast, and that's anytime you're internal, um, you, you face this trap of just assuming that your internal clients have no choice. And I, I talked about one of my very early bosses, Paul Bartholomew, who, after I left that job, continued to, to be a mentor to me, taught me the importance of always remembering that your internal clients have a choice. Just because your internal, your IT, your internal... Uh, digital analytics team that your internal clients have no choice but to use your service, your product. Um, he's like, no, they have a choice. Now, the CEO may say they don't have a choice, but by their actions, they have a choice. They can choose whether to use your stuff or not. And if they don't, I guarantee you they're going to be running some service under their desk, meaning I have my own computer on my desk. I'll go out and you know buy my own Google Analytics or whatever and do it my own way. And, and, and that's always an option. And that really stuck with me. Uh, Throughout my career and I always thought about the importance of being both uh, a sales um, Executive and a marketer Especially if you're internally and and I did this when I was client side. I I spun up a whole brand I worked with our graphic designer to create a logo for our internal practice. I branded it. I you know, I marketed it to Uh, to our internal clients because I knew they had a choice and I wanted them to choose what what I was building. And so to kind of fully circle back to your your question, yeah, I think it it happens a lot. We take it for granted that we think that just everyone's going to, quote, get it. um, Or we don't even think about it, that it's necessary. And so what we end up doing is we end up creating a list of features. And it reminds me a lot of the famous simon is it simon Sinek? um is this with the ipod with the ipod the yeah Yeah, it's a great one the ted talk um we we're we're basically the anti-ipod we're the here's all the different data points and segments and features and things you can use and you know some some slick outside uh sas vendors coming in and saying do you want 10,000 songs in your pocket like oh yeah I want that <laughs> you know and and so it's a it's a really really strong reminder that you know we can't just go in there and list off like all this cool like well we've deployed customer journey analytics and we have this data mart sitting on the data lake and then we've got that wired into our tableau instance and we put the star schema about, like okay kid I don't care about your list of features like what are you going to Give me. What are you going to make me feel like? How are you going to improve my my job? And I think as digital analysts, unfortunately, that conversation with ourselves of how do we market this, how do we position this to our internal clients, often never happens. And then we become a nice to have because it's like okay, you know, I got a, I've got this device with MP3s on. It, it's a nice to have versus a. I've got this amazing thing that I'm going to cherish and I'm going to put a tracker on it so I don't lose it because I want to have it. And, and unfortunately, and I hate to keep bringing this up, but it's, it's, it's the reality of what's happened in our industry that through the pandemic, through an economic slowdown, you can tell that digital analytics teams in lots of companies were nice to have because they were the very first ones to get downsized and some completely removed from the company, 100%.
1: Yeah, we saw a couple instances where I mean entire teams were nuked, not the majority with one or two left to keep the lights on. Like nobody was there to keep they you know, they're like, "Well, we're we'll, we're assuming the lights will turn back on." Yeah. In 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 a few months. Yeah. And and, and and how many cases were there were there where
0: the lights actually didn't turn back on when they came back around? Almost them. all of them. Um, and I think that was a surprise to a lot of companies. Um, but again, you know, I I I initially put the blame on the companies for not being smart enough to think about what they were putting at risk, but really a lot of the blame has to be on our shoulders. You know, we we failed to be indispensable. We failed to market what we were doing, we and we took it for granted that we had all these lists of features of things that we could provide and it failed to inspire our clients internally. And nothing could be clearer again what happened during the pandemic and the economic slowdown to say yeah that was really a thing and i and i keep bringing this up because i'm hopeful that we can learn the lesson you know we can put on the marketer hat and say you know we're we're going to we're going to we're going to inspire you with what we can provide you with and in order to do that we have to get past this desire to kind of talk the technical talk um, and, and I always want to be really careful when I say this because I don't say that to say we can't talk about complex topics. Not at all. We just need to think about how we're going to have that conversation rather than, hey, just sit down and listen to me say all these fancy words for 10 minutes. <laughs> it doesn't work. You know, We have to be diligent in what we're trying to do, and we have to think about our audience, think about our client, think about our customer – and say, how do we need to message the importance of what we're creating so that they absolutely not only want, but depend on the service that we're providing? And again, this comes full circle back to if we don't see our internal customers, our internal clients as having a choice, then we're probably not going to think about this. And we're just going to lob it over the fence and say, use it. And then they're not going to use it. And then we're going to scratch our head saying, I don't understand why they're not using it.
1: Yeah. And I think the big part of that too is, is just the assumption that the value I see is the value that you see. You know, Mm -hmm. I used the term earlier, you know, that the value is, is, is apparent to everybody else that, that, you know, with what we're doing and the value that we see, or another way to think about like there's intrinsic value in this, there's intrinsic value in digital analytics and, no there isn't the value comes with how you get buy in from your customers and how you actually run that program if you just assume everyone sees the value and you
0: don't put the effort in there's no value to be had yeah and i think a big reason why that is is happening is that you've got a lot of people well there's two different trends happening based on where we're at from a Maturity standpoint in our industry, you have a lot of people right now that are in these roles that are digital analytics lifers, meaning that's all they've known, that's the only jobs that they've ever had, and it makes it difficult to see things from a different perspective. Well, how would a product manager think about data? How would a UX designer think about data? How would a manager think about data? It's like they don't know because they've never been in those roles. Um, And it's one of the reasons why I've been so diligent in our hiring practices to look for people that not only have strong skills in in the analytics world, but have also had other experience professionally because I know the importance of being able to look at things from those different lenses because if we're just the digital analyst beating our, our internal clients over the head with the same message and the same data, it's, it's not going to resonate. We have to put ourselves in their shoes and say, you know, I, I can tell you what is meaningful to me as an analyst, but I need to know what's meaningful for you as a graphic designer. And if I can't put myself in that frame of mind and think about how I'm positioning what I'm doing from an internal analytics perspective, we leave a lot of opportunity on the table because that's where that disconnect in communication happens. Because again, we're, we're, we're assuming, and I I like how you put it, we're assuming that the value we see is the value they see. And it's, it's not because we see things as an analyst and they see things as, you know, fill in the blank of literally every role in a company that can make use of data. And
1: like as you're talking there, I immediately go to developers uh, you know, if you look at developers, to them, it's just one more thing being added to to a page. And one of the things that they are responsible for, and I have multiple clients where page performance and page load times have come under such such intense scrutiny that any little thing gets, um, I don't want to be redundant and say scrutinized, but every little thing gets like second guess, like, do we really need this? And if you go in just assuming that, yeah, we need this, it's it's more data to do X, Y, Z, you're going to lose that battle. You have to make a case for the business. And one other thing, one other comment I want to make is, is I like how you brought up the idea of digital analytics lifers, you know, Mm -hmm. where, where the state of the the industry is at. Um, Because in a similar vein, I was talking with somebody else internally today about, Um, a client we're working with and um, how that like our, our primary contact there um, brought somebody in shortly after, after us. And typically that would not, you know, would not go well for, for an agency, but on, in this particular case it's gone extremely well because we've been able to feed off of each other. Because he has brought like this breath of fresh air that this organization needed. Because most of the folks that are still remaining have been there for a significant period of time. So let's face it, you know, when you've been in an organization for a while, you start to lose objectivity. And you need to seek out that maybe through others or or whatnot. So we've been able to actually work together together to to bring that objectivity to the organization him from an internal politicking kind of way and us from that exterior uh or external exterior external um objectivity and
0: and it's worked really really well yeah yeah and i'm glad you added that because the the more life work experience we have the better able we are to create meaningful analytics practices, so the diversity of your analytics teams is, is incredibly important. Um, and I'm glad that you brought up developers, because I think that's also another emerging trend that, that we're seeing. Um, I think driven by one, there's just a lack of resources that are, really understand the digital analytics space, um, so hiring is really difficult. Um, lots of companies are fighting for very few resources and the resources they're fighting over, um, because of that lack of supply are really expensive. Even if they're incredibly inexperienced, they're really expensive. And so what we see a lot of companies doing is saying, well, let's take that three or four year front end developer and turn them into an analytics implementer, and architect. And without the pro and that can work because we've seen it work. We we've had clients where they've, they've made that choice. And with the right mentoring and support, they can be incredible analytics architects. We've just seen it too many times, uh, happened too many times to say it's it's not possible. But most of the times, they're, they, they do it without providing the proper mentoring and support, mostly because it doesn't exist within the company. Um, and they're unwilling to invest in bringing in an outside agency to help do that teaching and mentoring. And so they say, front-end dev, you go build this implementation. And I can't tell you how many companies I've talked to over a 10 year period where I've got a peek at their implementation. They say, we can't get any business value out of this. I'm like, who designed this? This looks like a software engineer design. He's like, oh yeah, yeah. Our MarTech solutions architect, uh, you know, used to be a friend in dev. We just threw him on this. I'm like, we, well, yeah, I can tell, like, this is, this is implemented like uh, like a software developer and not like an analyst. And you need an analyst that understands business to be able to architect solutions that are going to provide value to your stakeholders, your internal clients.
1: So so coming back around to, to the question of, you know, does your client actually care about digital analytics? What are some easy red flags to pick up that this is just window dressing versus doing something that will actually impact the business? Because I'm going to go with the assumption that the person on the other side of that equation gives a shit and actually wants to do something that's going to impact the, uh, the organization.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a really easy one. It's the difference between are you having conversations with your internal clients to go like this? Hey, I need this metric. I need this dashboard with these calculations on it because it's what I'm being measured for on my job performance or it's what my boss wants to see contrast that to your internal clients coming to you and saying, Hey, Jim, like I'm responsible for our conversion funnel. Um, I'm also responsible for our top of funnel paid search. I have no idea what's happening. Can you just like put on your creative hat and look at the data and just explore it? Cause I know that there's some valuable lessons that we need to learn what's happening there. And I don't even know what questions to ask you to go look for. Can your team just Compare those two conversations. That first one, they're doing it out of necessity because someone's asking them to do it. It's a vanity metric or it's a metric I'm being graded on versus I wanna use this data to learn more about the product I'm responsible for, the customers that I'm trying to create experience for. I don't even know what questions to ask you, Jim, but I know we've got the data there. And if we don't, can you tell me how we can get it? I just want your curiosity to help fuel what we're doing as a team that is a team that is fully bought in and cares about your practice. So if you're having one of those conversations versus another, I think that's the lens that I would start with to get a gauge of how much do our internal clients really care about what we're doing versus we're just an operational component in what they're trying to do.
1: Yeah, I think it's the the analogy we've talked about previously, the the short order cook versus the 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 high-end celebrity chef
0: yeah that's 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 right right so it's okay I've got a menu of metrics I want that metric okay versus uh no no, no. I want to come in and I want you to create an amazing eight-course meal for me I don't even know what it looks like you know just like create something magical for me the, at the sushi restaurants, the omakasa, right? Like, I don't know what I want. I trust you, chef. Give me, craft something that's going to be an amazing experience for me. If you're having those type of conversations with your internal clients, you're doing something right.
1: Would it be fair to say then that like in an organization where analytics is a nice to have and people don't actually care about it, do you think it's easy to fall into the trap of just doing fun stuff to do fun stuff? versus stuff that actually impacts the business. Oh, Cuz I mean sure. I think I think there is. I think there's definitely risk there.
0: Yeah, I mean, number one I think it's just human nature. <laughs> you know, we we like to work on fun projects and um, you know, especially those things we do in our free time. If it's, we're just doing it for fun, we're not tying it to some kind of outcome. You know, it's like, I don't care if it has any value. It's just fun to do. The value is it's fun for me to do. And so we, we see that happen a lot. Um, and also in, in those type of projects, it's kind of easy to measure work. You know, it's like, I built this thing, you know, I created that thing. Um, it, it's oftentimes a lot more difficult, to to paint the the story of building something incredibly um, valuable and unique that takes years to build um you know sitting down with teams and helping them become um smarter about how they think about data those things are incredibly difficult i talked um i talked with a friend yesterday who's been tasked with uh, quote, increasing data literacy at every stage of the supply chain. <laughs> and then I said, wow, dude, that's that's a big ask. <laughs> I don't even know where you start to do that. And I said, um, if, if I was in your shoes, I would start by talking to everybody and saying, can we just admit that this is an incredibly difficult thing to do that's going to take us years to accomplish? And we're going to have to break this down into bite-sized pieces so that we can fill – People that are, you know, that takes a lot of dedication to your craft and buy-in and desire. Most people aren't going to take on massive projects that are like that. They're going to take on, let me slap this tag on the page and start collecting data tomorrow so I can get that instant dopamine hit and feel good about what I do. I mean, yeah, you might get that instant feel good, but that thing is not going to continue to make you feel good. And so I think that's why we see such bloated stacks, like, you know, look at these companies. And we've talked about it before that 10, 15 years ago, like three or four major technologies on the site, go look at them now. And I talked about this um, uh, during my presentation on sustainable analytics that I gave at the DHL virtual summit on on analytics a a couple months back. Go look, look at the sites now. It's hundreds and hundreds of third party tags. And, you know, 20, 30 different technologies, sometimes two and three tag managers and multiple AB testing platforms. Like what are we doing here? But it's, it's because doing these big things of really unlocking that potential of that data and activating the data is really, really hard and oftentimes doesn't provide that immediate dopamine hit. And so we're like, well, let's just deploy more stuff because that feels really good. I'm like, yeah, it does, sure it does. But it's, like any addiction, you need more and more and more of it, right? Like so it's like, okay, the high we're off from deploying that thing, let's go get another thing and deploy it. Yeah, I, I'm
1: I'm happy you, you brought that up because it is really easy to get sucked into that that cycle that of you know you're looking for that next hit of the the fun thing of working in the tool, like the the enjoyment you can get out of that, but then also the the joy that you can get from jumping up and down and saying, look what we
0: deployed, but nobody actually uses it. Yeah. And and a lot of times, and I've been pushing this narrative really heavily and I've gotten a, gotten a lot of pushback on it, but a lot of times less is more. It, it really is. Um, I don't know if you as a parent have fallen into the trap of, uh, like a Christmas or a birthday party It's like let's get him like 50 things And then like they're super excited But then by the end of the day Like it's all pushed in the corner They're tired of it Whether than getting them one really nice thing And they're engaged in it for months And months and months Because they just love that one thing You know like Oh I've totally the, gotten sucked into that Right we all have and, and we all have done that And I've
1: actually like the A couple nights ago uh, My wife and I were talking about that And saying like Yeah, I think we have gone a little bit overboard, like between Christmas and his birthday and because there are there there's like I'm like, if we're not careful, like there's not going to be like those special toys. Yeah. Like those ones that like those ones that are like really special, Uh, because I mean, I think back to when I was a kid, like there were those really special things. And when you have everything, nothing is special.
0: That that's exactly right, and I'm and I'm glad the conversation has kind of gone down this path because it does fit so nicely into our, um, our strategy that we're talking about with all of our clients around the around sustainable analytics is that when you buy a lot of stuff, just look at things that you've bought. You know, you the the newness wears out really quick, and it ends up becoming a piece of. Furniture, it ends up becoming something you set on the shelf and it collects dust, and you don't pick it up. Versus, you know, buying just a few things and really, really nice things, and you cherish it, and and you take care of it, and you maintain it because it's it's so valuable to you. When you buy so much, the inherent value of things just plummets, and it's like, yeah, I'm not gonna take care of it. Yeah, I may pick it up every three or four years. You know, there's something to be said of having less so that you really cherish, take care of and get maximum value and enjoyment out of those things that you do choose to invest in. Yeah,
1: because we've been talking a lot about this just in general, not just, you know, in the context of my son too, but like with the the move we did and we we actually spent time going through a lot of the stuff that has just followed us from place to place and, um, and also like we got rid of a lot of things we donated stuff, but then I still have a couple piles now that are in my in-law's attic that I promised I'm going to go through this summer that I just didn't have time to get through. Um, because you're right. Like the, the more you buy the, it not only does that, that hit that dopamine hit wear off, it wears off faster and faster yeah. and faster. Yep. So you gotta go, I gotta, gotta go bigger and more frequently. Yeah. And then, yeah, that, that's how you end up with a garage full of half used things or the, to get that you start to, to rationalize like, yeah, I'll pick up that hobby. That looks cool.
0: And, and it's why so many of our internal clients don't care about digital analytics. And, and we think we're, we're, we think we're doing the opposite. You know, it's like, let's buy all of these tools and our internal clients are just going to be bedazzled and they're going to love it. And they're going to want all of it. Like, no, in fact, the exact opposite because we don't have the ability or desire to really care for those one or two special things that we decided to invest in that they can see our passion for it. We've, we've given them this like list of 300 different options they can choose from all of which we're not maintaining. They're dusty, they're broken down. And it's like, I don't want that.
1: Yeah. And what happens uh, when you just continuously buy you know, the more stuff you have, what do you start to encounter? What you start to run into is you start to have less and less time to maintain it. So not only now do you have a lot of stuff that, you know, you've, isn't really special that you really want to spend time using, you don't even have the time to maintain it. So they decay even quicker. Yeah. And that is especially true for digital analytics and marketing technology. There's a maintenance cost that comes with each of those. Mm -hmm. And the more you deploy, the less you are able to maintain it. So it begins to decay really quickly. It becomes unreliable. And you are now giving your
0: internal stakeholders a reason not to care about it. Yeah. You went full Tyler Durden. The Did I really? Yeah. The things you own end up owning you.
1: It's also a great um, Papa Roach lyric. From their first Is album, it? when they were good. I mean,
0: it's 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 true, right? Uh, and I yeah. and you you bring up a really really valuable point. All of these things we buy, it's it be, they they end up owning us. It, it's more and more on our t- and then and then we're frustrated, right? We're like, oh, we really want to do all this cool stuff with the data, but we can't. We're so like we did this to ourselves. You know, this was never forced on us. We we did this ourselves, and we put ourselves in the situation where. It's unmanageable. We're spending all of our time trying to keep it up and we can't, and then we're frustrated because we really wanna get to activating the data. It's like, okay, well, let's start with cleaning house and pulling back and pruning this thing back to a reasonable size so we actually have time to activate the data. Um, We just don't think about it. We don't think that there's ongoing costs. We think, and a lot of times, you know, props to the SaaS vendors for being really good at their sales and marketing activities. You know, they make it sound so simple. You just, you know, sign the contract, everything just magically works. You know, your whole your whole organization's going to be transformed. We we've been around long enough to know that that's never the case. It's never the case up front and it's surely not the case long term. Everything we buy, we we have to maintain and if we don't care about it if we don't care about maintaining those things there's no way our internal clients are going to care exactly and i'll go back to what i was
1: saying you know when you lose the ability to maintain something the integrity starts to come into question it starts to decay and then
0: people will not care the people who did care won't because yeah. they, they can't find it reliable Yeah. And I think it's a natural arc in in so many things. We see it in, in the food industry all the time. I'm sure you have examples in your area. There's lots of examples here where you have a single location. They're doing really, really well. And so they think, we want more of that. So they have two locations. Like, we want more of that. So they have four locations. We want more of that. They have eight locations. And it gets to the point where it's like, I can no longer maintain this. Surely we can't maintain it at the level of quality and care we had at one location or two locations. And so it plummets and then everything that drove them to to, to increase now is gone because they don't care. They don't care about all 50 locations anymore. So the experience plummets, the quality plummets, and now you become a commodity and people don't care about what you're doing. It's just something along the way and it crashes. So this is a natural arc we see in so many different areas of life and it's something that I think we need to look at as digital analysts to say this isn't unique to us. There's examples all over the place where this happens where we overinvest and our ability to care about what we're investing in drops and we become either commoditized or we go out of business. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be either one of those things. I don't want to be a commodity, and I don't want to go out of business. You, you see it all
1: over the place. I have seen it with a few different... like What, what started as single location mom-and-pop restaurants, and they they try to expand, and they just cannot maintain the the level of quality. And then I've also found others where they've been around for 30 years because they have a single location, or maybe a second, and... They, they maintain the quality,
0: and because there's less of it, there's more demand for it. Uh, uh, <laughs> more demand, and they care more about it, and it feels special and unique. I, I didn't think we were going to talk about food, but I'll give you two examples. Um, the little sandwich shop down the street from me that closed down a couple years ago because the owner retired. Single location his whole life. Incredible. The attention to detail, the quality, the experience he crafted for his customers. Unmatched. You, you can't scale that. And it just made you special going there. And you knew every time you went, you were going to get something high quality. My favorite sushi restaurant in Utah, Takashi in Salt Lake. Single location. And you can go there at 5 o'clock. If you're there at 5 o'clock on a Wednesday, you're around the other side of the block in line. You're, it's going to be a while for you to get in. People feel special and want that experience. And while he hasn't expanded... He's been incredibly creative because the space next to his restaurant came up for rent. You know what he turned it into? What? A tapas bar. Little bite-sized oh. mm-hmm. little bite-sized snacks and drinks. It's like, "Hey, it's going to be a 2-hour wait to get in for sushi. You might as well enjoy a few little snacks while you wait." Brilliant. Right. So he didn't have to like expand and try to duplicate what he was doing. He found a creative way to still grow his business, but in a, in a way that was smart and supported his main business without trying to just go more and more and more and more. Because he knows the minute he does that, he gives up what is so special to him and then he just becomes another sushi restaurant. And I can type in sushi in Google and it will say, well, there's 75 different places you can go within a 15 minute drive of you. There's nothing special about them. I'll give you a good TV example. Um, Ted Lasso.
1: Phenomenal first season. Good second season. It's in the, the middle of the third season. In fact, I, have, I didn't watch yesterday's episode yet. Um, all the talk is, is that this is the final season. They haven't formally said it, but what they've been hinting at is that this was designed to be a three-season arc. And we're going to find out if that's the case or not, what road they go down yeah. whether they say, you it's, know hard to no, th- it's hard it to is, make that choice. It is, especially with the ratings that they're getting. And if Apple start throws a certain amount of money at them, like this is the thing I'm, I'm watching to see because it is like so far, like you can start to see it, you know, at the beginning of the second season where you think the story is going to go. And there is a specific ending and it's going to be, I'm going to be curious if they stick to their guns and say, this is meant to be a three season you know, a three-season arc, and that is it. It tells a specific story, and we're done. Or if they get convinced, that oh, come back for a fourth season. Because, you know, what's going to happen then? Because I'm curious, and, and that's why I think they're, if they, if they go with their initial plan, there's going to be a ton of rewatchability in that show. A yeah. ton of value in that show. Because they just didn't, you know, throw episode after episode after you. You know, to you. They just, they stuck with a specific story, a specific number of episodes. And it's actually funny. um, Season two last year, they had initially ordered 10 episodes, but with the popularity of season one and people catching it as it started to catch, people watching it after it aired, after it started to catch on, they quickly throw on two more episodes. Apple ordered two more episodes with it. So they had already... You know, they had already written the, the 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 season, they already knew the arc, so they had to kind of fit these in. You knew exactly with, with two episodes yeah. they kind of threw in because they got paid for two more episodes. They were they were they were the two worst episodes of the series so far. <laughs> not
0: not surprising. Yeah. Um I'm I'm gonna compare and contrast Seinfeld with the Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. So on Seinfeld, not only did they know like we're nine seasons, this is it. But they also kept true to their vision of the core cast of the show. You know, I think there was lots of opportunities where, you know, Jerry could have had a longtime girlfriend or Elaine could have got married or George could, you know, but they didn't right like they they kept the core of the cast as it was they didn't try to expand it into some bigger thing it was this is the thing and it works and we're going to do it and we know it's going to work for nine seasons and then we're done contrast that with the big bang theory which i thought the first i don't know four or five seasons were really really good you know you kind of have the one relationship with penny where it was kind of on again off again but that was part of the storyline And it was really good, but then all of a sudden, everybody had a significant other, and then they all got married, and then all the roommates had spouses, and they had, like, all the – and it just completely crumbled what made that show, to me, really watchable and special, Uh, you know, because they tried to grow too big, expand too much, and every time you do that, it comes at a risk of destroying that thing that is so amazing and that people care about. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, we, we're, we're talking about food, we're talking about restaurants, we're talking about TV shows and, and other kind of content. How does that apply to, to digital analytics? Because I could hear someone saying right now, so you're telling me to produce less reports. You're telling yeah. me to throttle insights to my organization. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, because you, you think that your more data is better. And in 99% of the cases, it's not. I talked with a prospect once that said, hey, um, we're we're really trying to have everyone in the organization have data as part of what they do. I'm like, I love that. And and we've put together this this weekly dashboard that goes out to, to everyone in the company. No one's opening it. And I'm like, can you send it to me? And they said, sure. So I looked at it and it was every Friday, this Excel document went out, nine tabs in the document, And each of the tabs had something like 40 or 50 rows um, to it. And I can't remember how many columns. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, pare this down to just like four or five things. No, we can't. Like, this is so important. All this. I'm like, it's so important. No one's reading it. No one's looking at it. I don't care how important this data is. If no one's looking at it, if no one's using it to inform their work, it's worthless. So yeah, I'm saying do less. And, and not to say that you can't smart, be smart and creative and grow over time, absolutely. But if you can't do the basics right and get buy-in and excitement and inspire your internal clients with just the basics, adding 50 more things isn't going to help. It's only going to make it worse. So yeah, do less, care about those less things so your internal clients care about them. And then think smart and be creative of how you expand that. But just adding more data isn't going to solve anything. It just isn't. Yeah. Because um, I, I, I
1: definitely know from the instrumentation side, and I've admitted more times than I'd like to on here, that, yeah, early in my career in digital analytics, I definitely fell into the, the over-engineering of, of things. Um, definitely fell into the bad habit of doing cool stuff because it's cool and it really doesn't impact the business. Or, yeah, let, let, let's wire up as much as possible, And then you have a bloated implementation that no one can make heads or tails of.
0: And no one uses. Yeah. Again, but all this data is super important. I agree with you. But if no one looks at it, it's not important. One more parallel.
1: You know, people even make jokes about it. You have how many channels on TV? You have how many streaming (laughs) uh, set up? How many times are you sitting there at night like, what are we going to watch? I can't find anything. There's nothing good. There's nothing I want to watch on. I
0: have like 900 channels. I watch two of them. I watch like five. (laughs) It's, Uh, oh, yeah. To to, to go back to to go back to my, uh, can I can I do this without screwing it up? Let's see. To go back to my let's see, background. No, not that one. This one. Like when you and I were growing up, we had this TV that you had to get up and walk across to to change the channel, and it got like three channels. I was the remote. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and and we cherished those channels, and we knew it was on, and we valued it. And sure, I mean, there's value to more content, but we're, we're at this tipping point where there's so much that it's paralyzing and it's overwhelming, and we don't value it. You know, when, when, when this was the TV we had, and I'm looking at this old, you know, Tube TV trends. I don't know what you call these things. Like, you know, with the big old dial on it. I think mine was, an, ours was an RCA. Um, you, you valued that time that you were watching that that show. Now, like, we can't even sit down and watch a show because there's so many choices. What do we do? We sit down, we watch a show, we have our phone in our hand and we got other stuff going on on that. And if, heaven forbids, like a commercial or something comes on, we flip to another channel and... We've just lost that ability to really care about it because there's so many options. We don't care about any of it. My son hates commercials. And it's the funniest <laughs> so does, thing.
1: And so like he's used to, at this point, like it's it's actually interesting. Like He's used to being able to pick any episode of the show he wants to watch to pick. Not only is it, I want to sit down and watch Paw Patrol, <laughs> I want to watch the episode where Marshall does this. Like yeah. I've had those yeah. conversations. And at this point, there's some of those episodes. I know exactly which ones he's talking about. My wife will be like, he wants to watch the one with this. I'm like, Oh, it's in season five here. I found it. <laughs> <out."> <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> nah, because yes. like with, with our DVR system with YouTube TV, like you pretty much have access to, to everything with the, the rate at which Nickelodeon airs some shows. Yeah. So yeah. it is like it's yeah. I, I think it's it's funny. I didn't expect this episode to go in this direction. <laughs> but it totally does go yeah. into a to a less is more. Um and yeah. less is absolutely more in so many aspects of life. In most things for sure. For sure. sure. Well yeah, I didn't expect it to go this way, but uh turned out to be a great great conversation. Yeah, agreed it was a good one. So cool. So let's go ahead and yeah, let's, let's go ahead and wrap up there. And we will talk to everyone later. See ya. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents stickscom 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics routine.